Hi, I'm Mark Haywood and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. I remember one person in particular telling me that he got to a point where he, he didn't actually care whether he sort of lived or died, he felt so ill, and that he had hallucinations. Mount Kilimanjaro, a dormant volcano that stands nearly 6,000 metres above sea level. Located in Tanzania, it brings thrill-seeking hikers and climbers from around the world to Africa every year. But what draws people to summit this mountain? To spend up to $6,000, that's a dollar a metre, to put themselves through up to nine days of this brutal, painstaking adventure. The trek itself seems too daunting to most. Would you do it? But for the people who do brave it, Altitude sickness, lack of sleep, dehydration, exhaustion, these are just some of the things they may have to deal with. But what if there were an additional layer of jeopardy thrown into the mix? Well, we find out in Karen Hamilton's latest novel, The Contest, and I am delighted to say that she's my guest today. Chapter 1, A Mountain of Mystery The Contest is a psychological thriller that sees two expert travel guides escorting their teams to the top of Kilimanjaro. The twist is that the two teams are in opposition. The guides are locked in a challenge to summit the mountain before the other to win the ultimate prize. And as they lead this group of privileged, uber-wealthy clientele on this already threatening expedition, this cutthroat contest for riches and glory turns sinister. Karen spent her childhood in Angola, Zimbabwe, Belgium and Italy and has worked as a flight attendant for many years. I asked her to what extent that had influenced her as a writer because the contest very much fits into the wanderlust category. I think for sure it most definitely has. I mean, some of my earliest memories are of travelling and I was born in the 70s and I remember that flying was a very glamorous thing. People used to get dressed up to go flying and at one of the airports where I used to go as a child you could go out onto the balcony so you know whole families would go to wave people off and I've got memories of standing on the balcony you know and there'd just be the one plane leaving that day so you could see everyone like walking towards the plane you could wave to them and then people would choose different color garments if they were sitting on the window side to wave so that their you know friends and relatives could identify them And it was just, it was magical. One of my other first memories is of being on a flight with my mother and drinking an orange juice, packing suitcases, you know, and I I think smell is very evocative. Even now I can smell certain plants, certain things, and it just whisks me back to places that, you know, you'd almost forgotten about. So I I think definitely, I think it really, really has made a huge difference because um, especially during and COVID times and even practically in life, you can't necessarily hop on a plane or a train or it isn't practical and it isn't always, you know, advisable these days. So, yeah, it's it's a way, my writing's a way of exploring all the places I'd still love to visit, all the places that I miss and would love to go back to. So I'm, I'm very lucky. Well, it's clearly very effective because you have managed to transport me from East London to Kilimanjaro very skillfully. I could feel every step of that mountain. What you've essentially done for listeners who are going to be readers of this book is you've created a sort of locked room mystery 
on a mountain, which, if you know, if I sort of would have sat down and thought, let's see if we can do a locked room mystery on a mountain, you, you would have thought, well, don't be ridiculous. That sounds that sounds too hard. But actually, mm. it makes a huge amount of sense because unless you are leaving the mountain because you can't go all the way to the top, you are going all the way to the mm. top. And we climb this mountain step by step with these characters how on earth did you come up with the idea of setting this mystery this locked room mystery on Kilimanjaro originally I knew that this next book I wanted to set it within the continent of Africa somewhere and I thought about something that I've never done that I've always wanted to do and when I was working as cabin crew on occasion we flew over Kilimanjaro and I remember looking down and seeing it and just seeing it as this magical, amazing place. So I just decided with my desire to set it in a country within Africa and this memory of flying over it. And um, I've had several friends who climbed it. It just felt like the right thing to do. And had COVID not happened, then I would have, you know, I would love to have gone and climbed it, but that just didn't happen. So I always like to go to the places that I'm writing about and experience it. And so I did think twice about whether to maybe park it for a bit and make it into a future book but I just sort of felt compelled that this was the book and this was the time to set it so I just badgered people who had done it to absolute death <laughs> and you know like what could you smell could you see the stars like you know if you saw any sort of litter what sort of litter did you see was it a problem you know your your weakest moments your highest moments all those kind of things and I just badgered <laughs> and tortured you know these poor people until I felt like I'd got everything and then I picked out a lot of the common themes everybody I spoke to said that it was the hardest thing they'd ever done and that just came out time and time and time again that and it had nothing to do with your fitness or your your mental ability even if you're a sports person and, and that that's what you were used to none of that came into play so what I loved about it and being able to write this, that on, on many ways it was a level playing field for the characters because no one had an advantage really over anyone else. It, you know, on the mountain, it didn't really matter how much money you had, you know, how much money given the characters' natures they could throw at a problem. If you were physically suffering, you were physically suffering and that's how it was going to be. I really enjoyed getting into the nitty gritty of all that. And I, I really felt like I really, sometimes I forget that I haven't actually done it. I'm sure I, I still hope to do it in the future. And I'm hoping that I don't feel any differently to how I feel now. I mean, obviously I will because, you know, but yeah, it was, it was definitely, definitely on the bucket list. I feel like I've done it having read this. Thank though, you. Even <laughs> Thank though I you. haven't. So let's set this up. So essentially you have this very high-end luxury travel company who have many long-standing, extremely wealthy clients who are obviously quite loyal to the company. Yeah. And for some reason, the organizer or the owner of the company has divided this climb into two two camps, one led by Florence and one led by Jacob. And essentially it's set out very early on in the book that whoever gets to the top first, and there are a series of conditions, will win something. And it doesn't matter what they what they win. People who read the book will, will get to learn mm. what that is. So you set up this competition 
within this challenge right from the get-go. And then what I thought was really interesting, and I'd love to spend some time here, is that when we move between the two camps, because they take slightly different routes, they do converge at some point, but they take slightly different routes up the mountain. So they are, to all intents and purposes, separated from each other. They have their guides and their porters. And I want to talk about them a little bit later. Mm -hmm. But when we shift between the two groups, when we're with Florence, we're very much in her own first person narrative. And when we're with Jacob, you've changed that to be a third person narrative, which I thought was unbelievably effective at creating huge amounts of tension because I was never sure who I was trusting, why I was trusting them. And I wanted to ask you about the choice of tense when you were changing perspective, was that conscious or did that evolve during the writing process? Or did you think, do you know what, the only way to make this happen is to give them completely different narrative tenses? That definitely evolved during the editing process and conversations with my brilliant editor, Jack. You know, as soon as I did it, I was like, yeah, why didn't I do that in the beginning? But initially the first two drafts were two first person narratives. And then, yeah, then then I changed it and I was, very happy with the change it felt very you know I don't know if other authors say this but during the editing process you don't always know where you're going well I don't some authors some authors do but or or whether the changes you're going to make are going to stick and obviously you can still change it it doesn't really matter but yeah it's, it's it's a lovely feeling when you do actually change something on quite a major level and it just that you just look and you think oh yeah that that's what was missing that's what that's what was needed so I, I, you know, I'm very pleased that you picked up on that. Thank you. Well, well, this came out very recently. So at the time we're recording this, the episode that's out at the moment is my conversation with an Irish writer called Colin Walsh. And he has three different perspectives, two of which are in the first person and one of which is in the second person, which is very rare. Yeah. And he said it was astonishing that when he put the character into the second person, he said it immediately clicked. It immediately yeah. made sense. But to hear that you'd gone all the way through a couple of drafts and then and presumably through querying and, and all of that, and, and then you'd you'd got this feedback. I mean, that's not it's not a find edit replace, right? This is no, this is no difficult <laughs> no. stuff, but it, it genuinely works because Jacob being in the third tense, there is an element of mystery around this because you're thinking, well, who is watching him? Is this some kind of omniscient narrator or is this one of the characters who's watching him? And 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 we don't need to dig into this, but no. I was constantly on edge thinking I feel much more assured while I'm following Florence and I get less assured when I find out what it is <laughs> she's trying to do. Yeah. So, you know, as I kept turning the pages, I was thinking this is really smart because there is this cognitive shift in me and I, and I can recognize it by the changing of tenses so it was a hundred percent the right i'm i'm so glad you did it because it it is extremely um effective but yeah wow so you went all the way to the end and then had to do do all that editing yeah i I mean it's i'm as you can obviously tell i'm not a planner i have tried to plan and actually i thought i'd planned it quite well but it doesn't work that way i'm very much everything comes to the writing so i do masses and masses of rewriting and editing you know a lot more than i know if I was a better planner, maybe that wouldn't sort of be the case. But but I also think we're all different and everyone likes to work how how they like to work, don't they? So yeah. I've tried not to beat myself up too much about that. <laughs> Chapter two, reliance on trust. 
I know two people who have climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and both of them talked at length about their guides and their porters as these incredible human beings who've been up and down this mountain as if it were just nipping to the shops. But something they were both clear on was how essential trust is. When it comes to climbing a mountain like Kilimanjaro, you almost need to see your team as your family because up there it's just you and them and anything that threatens that trust threatens everyone. So in a story that absolutely demands that you trust each other, the distinct lack of it between everyone in this novel is what makes it so powerfully tense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the best books, so I obviously read a load of books as well as talking to people, and one of the best books that I read was written by a local guide. And it was such an incredible read. And like you say, to them, the perception is that, I mean, obviously this is this is what they do, but still, you know, they they start out somewhere and their first trips aren't easy. And without them, people wouldn't be able to get to the top. And I think there needs to be a lot of respect. And um, I think, as you said, your friend said, and, you know, and that's another thing that I forgot to mention earlier, as well as everyone saying it was the hardest thing they ever did in their lives. They said the bond with, with the guides and the porters was just something that they will take with them forever how amazing that you can be climbing this mountain and and all you've got to worry about is your personal stuff but yet your food your water like everything you need is going to be there your shelter everything there is going to be there for you and without that would you know how many people obviously there'd be a few but how many people would actually make it so I love that relationship I absolutely love that relationship that whilst you're going through this life-changing experience you've got all these people to share it with and I think also as well with these people who are extremely wealthy most of them I sort of think to really try and maybe obviously they don't all get it but for some of them to maybe realize how sort of connected we all really are in life and you can't do things you know none of us can live on our own without other people but I think the perception with some of the characters is that you know as long as they can throw enough money at something it's achievable and to realize that actually that isn't really always the case was something that I found really fascinating and and magical and one of the reasons actually one of the main reasons and having read this book written by one of the main reasons that I still it's still something that I really really want to do because I want to experience that it's such a great leveler isn't it and and you talk about the wealthy so let's talk about them let's talk about the uber rich one of my friends who climbed it told me this amazing story of this couple and I think they were from the Middle East and they turned up with thousands and thousands of pounds worth of kit. And you talk, you set up the rules, the rules of Kilimanjaro, you set up the weight limit yeah. um, and your bag gets weighed before you go into camp. And and obviously their bags were hugely, <laughs> hugely overweight and they just left the stuff. They said, well, we, you know, you can get it back at the hotel when we when we come back down and they just went, no, it's all right. You can have it, wow. you know, as if it, it you know, yeah. it, it, it sort of wasn't. And I, and I often find, you know, that money and respect are not necessarily things that go hand in hand because you think, because you can buy it, because you can buy your way in to this, it becomes something that you, you know, are instantly going to, to achieve. And so you've created this bunch of characters who can buy their way in, who want different types of jam in the morning when actually 
you're just lucky you're getting you know yeah. tea and water yeah exactly <laughs> yeah you're lucky and, you've got any food yeah and and interestingly and again we won't do spoilers here but interestingly not all of the wealthy people make it to the top no. um for a variety of different reasons and i was fascinated by that because i'm sure there are people who would love to try and summit Killy, but don't get the opportunity because it is expensive and the yeah. reason it's expensive is because there are guides and there are rules and people need to be paid yeah. because if don't people will literally die yeah um but i'm fascinated by the relationship between money and adventure because these people on this climb they they are regular clients aren't they of this company yeah. and they do this all the time i wonder whether your work in airlines and meeting customers who are wealthy do you notice that relationship between respect and and money i mean i'm sure people are I'm sure most people are very very nice but mm. there must be an assumption that money does allow you to do things that other people can't and i wondered whether that was something that you'd noticed in the people that you'd met i think yeah absolutely i think it, it does vary again you can get very very nice respectful people who are very wealthy who who understand you know that they're privileged and definitely that that comes across but then you can get people from all areas actually who decide that they don't need to treat you with respect for whatever reason or, or other people and definitely I think when you're working in any kind of industry travel and tourism or, or you know I mean I, I've done a lot of waitressing and bar work in my younger years and stuff I, I think wherever or any kind of service industry you are going to encounter people mm. who assume that you're there to be at their beck and call you know it's about not understanding sometimes that perhaps people are I don't know if this is the right word actually but human yeah. <laughs> you know and you know whatever industry you work in you've got feelings and you know I, I sort of think something that I read about the guides and the porters and that they're obviously leaving their families for long periods yes. of time and you know because there's the seasons there and it is that you don't know if somebody is missing their, their children or if, if someone's ill at home and, and they're there. And I think it it's that so many people who work in the service industry, obviously that's what they're good at. You, you're good at putting on a professional front and that's as it should be. But at the same time, it's interesting that some people just don't don't get it or don't stop and think and understand, as you said, how did this jam even get here, <laughs> let yeah. alone let alone wanting a different flavour. But I think it's also that um, divorce from reality, perhaps, yeah. if you've been very cushioned or very separated from reality. Because I think, you know, for most of us, we're not, because we have to deal with stuff in life that would be great if we didn't have to, but there you go, <laughs> we are. And, and 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 although, you know, I fantasize about winning the lottery and, and things on some days and how amazing it would be I also think a lot of what we learn in life is through not necessarily adversity I mean yes adversity but but through the mini challenges not just the big challenges and how it shapes us as people and yeah I mean I'm not gonna deny that I wouldn't love to have a mansion with a swimming pool and, and that but at the same time at a certain point you do read don't you about um some people who come into money suddenly actually missing their old lives you know i have yes. i have read things like that chapter three the game master hugo the man at the center of all this is a fascinating and deeply flawed character 
Not only does he run the luxury travel business, he's also the creator of this bizarre contest full of traps, tricks, backstabbing, and things that are generally designed to hurt rather than help. I get the feeling that if we were able to talk to him, he would very charmingly and disarmingly try to convince us that what he's doing is the right thing, when it's clearly not. He was so deeply troublesome to me that I kept waiting for him to come back on the page and see what crazy idea he'd come up with next. And I found it incredibly interesting how, despite not having his own perspective in the book, Hugo demands so much time and space within it. He was very interesting to write. I did actually toy at some point with thinking about putting his point of view on, but then I thought, no, I think he's better as he is because, you know, you do, like you say, you do think, what on earth are you doing? Why are you doing this? And the way I thought about him was that because he doesn't trust people, even people close to him, he feels like he has to continually test them to see how loyal they are. And also he's got this sense of, well, I didn't have it easy, so why should other people have it easy? Yeah. But he he takes it a step further. It's almost like he's forgotten that actually he didn't actually have it this hard. And it's about the only way he can maybe even a tiny bit respect people is about seeing what they're like at their worst, challenging them, and then only then maybe will he begrudgingly, maybe if you're lucky, trust. But I think also as well, he's obviously the sort of person who's destined to perhaps never really ever achieve that kind of feeling because it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable to push people close to you that much and expect that one day they're always going to be there. Yes. And I and I wonder whether actually if you'd have included his POV, that may have made him slightly less authentic because he doesn't seem to me to be the sort of person that would volunteer information. No. No. And so to have his POV, I think would have would have clouded my authenticity the authenticity that I saw in him so I can yeah. understand why you why you backed away from that but yeah I, I thought he was fascinating but let's let's finish going by talking about the thing at the center of all of this which is this mountain and yes. I could smell it I could see it I could hear it I that really means see. a lot thank you <laughs> no I really could um I have since reading your book I have since spent far too long on YouTube watching videos of people climbing <laughs> Kilimanjaro and it is astonishingly accurate in terms of what you've written in your book to what you can see um on screen but there are there are a couple of things that really stand out to me one is the relationship between the land and the sky particularly when you talk about the stars almost as if the stars are nearer and of course they are yeah. but to be honest you know mm-hmm. as high a mountain as it is it's really you know it's it's tiny in comparison with the sky but there is this notion that you are, you know, that you are closer to it. But the thing I really wanted to to sort of talk about was the impact that altitude has, because yeah. I know for a fact I will never climb Kilimanjaro. I once went to Peru and went to Machu Picchu. Now, Machu Picchu is actually lower altitude than Cusco, where you kind of fly into to go to Machu Picchu. I can remember that as the plane taxied to the terminal and the cabin decompressed, I started coughing and wheezing and was out of breath. And I found walking around Cusco was like having permanent cramp and pins and needles and asthma all at the same time. And it's extraordinary 
it's really really difficult and so when you when people started to do that and i i was like i remember this was awful i felt so so sick and it's amazing to me that you can put yourself through that i'm sure mm. for some people like the porters they may not even notice it because they've been doing it so long they yeah. grew up at altitude etc cetera, etc cetera. but it is amazing the impact that that can have and then it's even more incredible that people still put themselves through you know going to the top almost trying to trying to defeat the mountain mm. i find it i found that extraordinary when you spoke to people about it did they talk about the impact of altitude yes everyone mentioned that and um i remember one person in particular telling me that he got to a point where he he didn't actually care whether he sort of lived or died he felt so ill and that he had hallucinations wow yeah he just and there's a lot that he doesn't sort of remember because you know his memory's sort of been jogged by his friends and yeah i think that sometimes there's kind of like a hope or how, how he explained it to me was that you know if you train enough in advance like a lot of things if you train and put put the training in it's obviously going to make things easier but that the altitude sickness can hit anyone at any time so it again it doesn't matter and I do remember reading and I think I yeah I, I did put this in the book and I think yeah I was quite fascinated to read about Martina and Vratilova because obviously you know such an amazing sports person and and she she was affected by the altitude sickness so I that was quite an eye-opener for me to think that you know I could understand if it would happen to someone like me but you you know you kind of think people who are incredibly fit and incredibly healthy will be able to and it isn't always necessarily the case and so I think that's what's amazing about it is you you just don't know when you start out and like you say, it, it costs a lot of money to go and, it, it, you know, not everyone's going to be able to have the opportunity or the chance. So it's a risk. It's a risk. Well, if you're listening to this episode on the day of broadcast, the contest is out tomorrow. It is part love letter to Kilimanjaro, the roof of Africa and part murder mystery locked room. It is put together an absolute triumph. Karen Hamilton, it has been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Karen Hamilton for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? While it can be very helpful to have visited the place you're writing about, as we've said many times, be an expert. If you haven't had that opportunity, then don't see it as a closed door. Like Karen did, badger the people you know have been there constantly. Just make sure you come armed with all the right questions and lots of them. Sometimes it's most powerful not to give the villain of your novel their own perspective. By shutting the gateway to their mind, you can deepen the mystery of their actions. And finally, trust your editors. Even when they're asking you to rewrite huge swathes of your book, an editor's insight is invariably invaluable. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We would love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. You can also sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London. Titled Inside Stories, these events are not recorded and not repeated and are designed to put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. 
Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.